0: Well, usually an introduction in a sermon serves the purpose of getting people's attention. To do that this morning, I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, because the passage that we are spending time in this morning is one that gets its fair share of attention all on its own. So if you can turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you're here visiting with us, uh, there should be some black Bibles in the rows in front of you, unless we've shifted the chairs around so many times lately. Maybe they're not there, but... Uh, But if you're visiting, and if you have one of those black Bibles in the pews, it'll be page 991, one of the short letters in the New Testament there. If you find the book of Hebrews, it's right in front of it. Uh, We're in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I am going to read for us, starting in verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Will you pray with me? Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the light that it is that we need in, in our own darkness and our own comprehension. Father, I pray that you will help us to to learn from your word this morning, that you will teach us, that you will accomplish in us what you desire to accomplish. Help us to respond to your word for what it truly is, the word of God spoken to us with the power to save us. And Father, I pray for myself this morning. I'm a little bit under the weather, and I'm I'm intimidated by the task that lies before me. Lord, I pray that you would uh, equip me and sanctify me to do uh, to do the job of accurately teaching your word this morning. And Father, we thank you that you are the one who is at work while we spend time on your word. We pray that you will glorify yourself here in our midst this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, it should come as no surprise that the passage that we've just read has attracted its fair share of controversy. There are many who dislike it so much that they try to explain it right out of the New Testament. Maybe the Apostle Paul didn't write these words, some people surmise. Maybe Paul didn't write 1 Timothy, the whole book. Maybe Paul didn't mean what he wrote. Maybe Paul was just wrong this time. And I'll be upfront with you, it's not the most straightforward passage in the world. There are parts here that are hard to understand, and there are parts here that, even once we understand them, aren't very appealing to some of our modern sensibilities sometimes. But if God's Word is God's Word, and we are people of that Word— then it's not an option to explain away the parts that we have trouble with. In fact, it might actually be a better chance to grow in our faith when we submit to the parts of God's word that are the hardest for us to hear. That's getting a little ahead of ourselves where we are right now. The first thing we need to do is explain um, what Paul actually wrote, what those words mean, because there are some phrases in there that are confusing, and do our best to explain why he wrote it to Timothy in Ephesus. If you've been with us for the first 6 weeks or the last 6 weeks or so in our studies, we've been learning from this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, which we call 1 Timothy. And you might recall that in 1 Timothy 3:15, Paul actually explains and he gives us his main reason for writing this letter. He says, "I am writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God." The main concern of this letter that we call 1 Timothy is to lay down some healthy foundations for how the church God's household is to conduct itself. Particularly in chapter 2, the topic being discussed is what are the priorities for when the church gathers together. Last week, we got to see what the content of those public gatherings of the church should be. And the content, first and foremost, should be prayer. This week, we carry that thought forward and we look at what the conduct should be when the Christian church gathers together for worship. Now the context of how the church should behave in formal gatherings is going to be very important to keep in our minds as we think through these things. These are not rules that apply everywhere always for everyday conduct, in the street and in the home. These are guidelines for public meetings of the household of God. They might very well prove to be good advice in all those other arenas, but they only carry the force of prescriptive uh, descriptions for the church and for those directions inside the worship services. So the first instruction that we read is is directed towards the men in verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So that gives us principle number one for behaving the household of God. And I'm going to word it like this, that men should take the lead. Here in the prayer, which is prescribed as the the main ingredient, or one of the main ingredients in public worship, that men should take the lead in prayer, and that men should take the lead in general in those worship services. When it says that the men should pray, that does not mean that the woman shouldn't. How do we know that? Well, Paul... When Paul wants to say that women shouldn't do something, like take the role of teacher down in verse 12, he doesn't mince words. He says it very clearly there. There's no prohibition like that in verse 8. And we know from all sorts of other sources in the New Testament that the women were not prevented from praying in public. We witness them doing it in Scripture. We have instructions written by the same Apostle Paul who wrote this book over in 1 Corinthians, explaining how, actually giving advice on how women should pray and prophesy. So the point of the call to men to pray in verse 8 isn't that only men should pray. It's that first, the directive and the responsibility to pray is on the men. Men are expected to take the lead in worship. And Paul feels it's probably worth reminding them of that fact. Two things are supposed to characterize these men who pray publicly for the benefit of the church. A healthy relationship with God and a healthy relationship with others. Lifting up holy hands, it says in verse 8, which I don't think is the correct posture for praying, although that's a fine posture for praying to put your hands up. But I think he refers to hands because your hands are what you work with. There are, um, you know, a, a lot of guys work with their hands uh, a lot of guys put their hands through a lot in the work that they do. For years, I worked in a paint store, and there were very few chemicals that I have not dipped my fingers into for various jobs or completely saturated them in. Um, as a result, I have what I'm told is chronic dermatitis. My fingers crack, the, the pads of my fingers crack out, and they dry out, and they crack and split and bleed all the time. Um, lots of guys put their hands through a lot worse than I do. Some have missing digits or scars or stories that their hands tell. A hard day of work might end with blisters or grease or other things that just don't come off. Paul says that our hands ought to be holy when we lift them up in prayer. And that's because our hands show where we've been and what we've done. So how are your hands? Psalm 24 asks the question, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? And then it gives the answer. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. So how do we have clean hands, holy hands? Well, the answer really has two parts. The first and most important part is that the only thing that will take away guilt and sin is the blood of Christ which was shed for us. If your hands and your heart aren't clean, don't hesitate to confess your sins to Christ and be cleansed. And on the basis of this passage, don't, don't enter into worship of God, especially not in for, before other people. Until you have come to him and experienced that. And there's another part to it. There's the part that we, the way that we live day to day before God. You know, our, our hands show with our work where we've been and what we've done. And God sees our lives too. So part of taking the lead in worship and in prayer is in, is lifting up holy hands. And with the very life that you live. The second characteristic that's mentioned is a healthy relationship with others. We're to pray without anger, without quarreling. Have you ever heard someone pray and you got the impression that their prayer was not directed primarily towards God? That maybe that prayer was for the benefit of some other people in the room. That the prayer wasn't to God, it was maybe at others. It was turned into a weapon. We have no right to use prayer in that way. Remember what Jesus instructed his followers about worship in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there on the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. Then come and bring your gift. Genuine worship with God requires a good relationship with others in our lives. There's two things that can keep men from taking a lead in prayer. Lacking clean hands or lacking a clean relationship. But the most crucial part to not miss in verse 8 is this. I desire that in every place the men should pray. Full stop. There's no point in pointing out that clean hands and good relationships is a requirement for prayer if we're not praying. The challenge, first and foremost, is that the men will take the lead in worship and in prayer in the life of the church. And that's a challenge for the men in the church today. Then then we work forward in verse 9 and 10 the focus shifts over to the behavior of the women during these services. If you want to read with me, verse 9 again. Likewise also I desire that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. So the first thing we should notice here is that opening phrase, Women should adorn themselves. Sometimes we bounce off this passage just sort of in a glancing way with the wrong impression that it says that women should not adorn themselves. But that's not what it says. It's proper for women to consider their appearance and the way they appear to others. What we get here instead is what the proper standards and motivations should be for that. And the standard given here is with modesty and self-control. Not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. There's nothing necessarily wrong with hair or gold or pearls or clothing. God invented them all, and he gives the beauty that comes with all of them. But in the end, those things can be temptations to move away from the standard of modesty if they're put to incorrect use. When we hear of modesty being flaunted, the first thing we tend to think of is probably seductive clothing that draws too much attention to a woman's physical attractiveness. And that is definitely a part of modesty, and it's definitely an area that is going to challenge the way the rest of the world acts and behaves right now, and it's going to convict us and challenge us about how we should walk as Christians in this world. But the mention of braided hair and gold and pearls and costly attire means that the call to modesty is not just limited to sex appeal. It's very possible for many women or men, so these bits of advice apply to men just the same way keeping holy hands and right relationships with others apply to women. It's very possible to flaunt modesty by dressing in a way that draws undue attention to yourself without being immodest in the sexual realm. Clothing and adornment can be and is used all of the time to send a message to the people around us. The message could be I'm wealthy, I'm wealthier than you. It could be I'm proper and I'm classier than you. It could be I'm powerful. I have a station in life that gives me control over you. The message could even be this, I'm humble. Look at the way I'm drawing to attention to myself to how humble I am because of how poorly I've dressed on purpose. At the root, when pride steps up and modesty starts to suffer, the goal is always to attract too much attention to ourselves. That's how it comes out. That's how it comes out of our heart. Paul is pleading with the women in the church, don't be like that. Don't let the standards that the rest of the world plays by creep into the way you live your life as a daughter of the living God. Particularly when the church gathers to meet and to worship. What do you want the attention to be on? What is your motive for dressing the way you do and acting the way you do? Is it to magnify the Lord or is it to get that spotlight moved over towards yourself? We all have to ask this in our hearts. David Platt puts it in really useful terms when he prays like this. He says, May God raise up women across our churches who refuse to get up any day, especially on Sunday, and think, What can I wear today that will make me look good to the people around me? Instead, may our sisters in Christ ask this How can I dress and what can I do today that will draw the most attention to my God? Verse 10 drives home what is really the best adornment for a Christian woman good works that are in keeping with our faith. That's what's proper for women who profess godliness. These standards aren't for those outside the church, no matter how much good it might do the people outside the church to take notice of them. It's not our job to police everyone else out there. It's our responsibility to honor God in our behavior here as God's people and to bring him glory. We live in a ridiculously visual age. And I say ridiculous because I wonder what history might say about the the television and iPhone and social media generations that we are currently a part of right now. We take in so many images so fast, and we are affected by all of them. And this has always been the case for people. It goes right back to what Paul's talking about here, but especially in this age, we have so many ways to manipulate how we are perceived by other people. We can touch up pictures of ourselves, We can take a selfie over and over and over again and just discard the ones that we don't like and only show the people the ones that we do like. We have so much control over the way people see us today. There's a temptation to tweak the way you appear to other people and then to base your whole identity and your self-worth on that tweaked version that you present to them. Now more than ever, we need Paul's advice that the proper outward adornments of one who professes to know Jesus Christ is this, to live like someone who knows Jesus Christ, to live in a Christ-like way. Every outward adornment that you put on makes a statement to the world about you. If you want the world to know that you're rich, there are ways to send that message. If you want the world to know that you're sexy, there are ways to send that message. If the message you want to be known, if the message you want to be sending is that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then the way you send that message is through modesty and self-control and with good works that are in keeping with who our God is. And now the rest of our passage today picking up in verse 11 addresses in quite a lot of uh, some detail a pattern of obedience that is to mark the way worship services in the household of God are to be conducted. Paul is writing the rule to Timothy, but he's really engaging directly with the hearts of the women who are going to be the recipients of this teaching. Verses 11 and 12. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. The pattern of obedience that's laid down here, the theological boundary line, if you want to say this is the line that should not be crossed, is that women are not to take on the mantle of authoritative teacher of doctrine in the household of God. When we read the words, I do not permit a woman to teach, it would almost be better translated, I do not permit a woman to be called teacher, the way it's phrased. And the the word teach in the pastoral epistles, when Paul's writing to Timothy and to Titus, is always, always used in the sense of authoritative teacher of the church. It doesn't mean a woman can't teach ever. We know that because there are lots of places in the New Testament where women are seen teaching and commanded to teach. And it's a good thing. God gifts women to teach the same way he gives men to teach. But the role in the church is different. And so the line that's drawn here is that women are not to take on that responsibility that belongs to the church fathers and the elders of teaching the official doctrine of the church, of taking on that kind of teaching. And everything that's written in those two verses applies to that one situation. Everything is shaping and, and draw, fleshing out what that one thing looks like. You can't take the phrase, I do not permit a woman to teach, and pull it out of context and apply it everywhere. In fact, in Colossians 3.16, just to give one example, we're told that all believers, men and women, are exhorted to do this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. We're all called, as brothers and sisters, to constantly teach and remind ourselves about the gospel and about the word of God. All those other troublesome phrases can't be taken out of the context either. That women should be submissive, that they should not exercise authority over a man, that she is to remain quiet. They're all given in the context of willingly submitting to and not trying to usurp or take over that role of teacher in the church. They shouldn't be twisted into saying that women should always be quiet. And they certainly don't teach that any man in the church has authority to exercise over any woman in the church. That's not what's being said there at all. And it's been twisted into things like that in the past. We need to distance ourselves from those things, to repent of some of the things, that misinterpretations and misapplications of these truths in the past. It doesn't prevent women from speaking in church. All these phrases are directed towards the hearts of the women. To this end, that they would respect the pattern that God has laid down for leadership in the church and embrace it that they wouldn't try to usurp it, that they wouldn't accept this, this pattern of teaching in the church with an attitude that just chafes under authority. So there's a clear boundary, which is that the role of a spiritual teacher for the church family belongs to the male church fathers. Not all the men in the church. We're going to look at, starting next week, the qualifications for those elders and those people that God gives to the church to lead it. And I'm I'm sure that God has made exceptions to this rule over the years. I don't doubt that in certain times and places there have been no suitable male leaders or teachers, and that God has gifted and called women to step up. I don't deny that that's never happened, but there's something about the very nature of those situations that calls attention. They're, They're the exceptions that prove the rule. So there's this boundary line, and then there's also a principle that governs how we should behave on this side of the line. Paul's asking the women in the church to be learners, to be quiet and submissive and respectful, to not just grudgingly go along with the system, but to see it as part of God's gracious gift to the church and to support it. Someone whose perspective that I really value on this is a writer named Mary Cassian. She's clearly a gifted teacher in the church, and she wrote an article about the way she strives to joyfully use her gift in ways that would support God's design. She explained how the New Testament picture of the church as a family was a really important concept in working this out in her own life. And that's the same picture that we have of the household of God here in First Timothy. She writes this, The Bible teaches that in the nuclear family unit, as well as in our corporate church families, the father, or multiple fathers in the case of the church, have the responsibility to lovingly lead and humbly govern the family unit. And then she talks about her struggles about deciding, well, when can I teach and when can't I? Which is probably a very legitimate struggle if, if you are here and you are a woman who is gifted in the area of teaching, because we have many in our church. Have you ever asked that question? She found that asking the question, how far is too far, was an unhealthy question to ask, because it had her pointed in the wrong direction right from the beginning. And she, and she said, instead, for me, a better question is, do I love what God loves? Am I treasuring Jesus by treasuring God's model of male headship? Do I uphold it and support male headship as a good and beautiful aspect of God's wise plan? Does how I exercise my teaching gift indicate that I value that? If you're a woman who's gifted in the area of teaching and you've been asking some of the same questions, I would encourage you to read that whole article by Mary. It's excellent. I'll post it on the church Facebook account next week. Or if you just want a copy, come up and ask me after the service and I'll give you a copy. But this idea of replacing the well how far is it okay to go question with the do I love what God loves in my heart question is a really important one for every believer in every area of our our obedience to God's word. And the place that Paul goes next in this passage to give the theological explanation for the rule that he's just laid down is a powerful place for us to go and think through our motives for our obedience to God and his word. And the place where Paul takes us back is to Genesis, back to the garden, back to creation and to the fall. Verses 13, 14, and 15. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So verses 13 and 14 both give explanations for that pattern of of male responsibility and headship in the church. The first and most important reason comes in verse 13, and it's rooted in creation. Before we even get to the fall, before things get twisted and broken and complicated, Adam was formed first, and then Eve. There was an order in creation. There was a design. There were differences between the two sexes. And that design was a good gift. The mutual roles of the man and the woman were a positive, beautiful reflection of the character of God. In the second argument Paul provides from Genesis, it it takes us right into the heart of the obedience issue. He points out that Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. There's a lot at stake here. We need to think carefully about what Paul was intending to say. There are many who suggest that Paul is making two separate arguments. Argument one, from design, Adam was created first, that was the, that was the, that, that's the design, and then Paul's making a totally, totally separate argument. Argument two, because Eve was the one that was deceived and not Adam, men are better equipped to be leaders and teachers. I'm not sure I agree with argument two. And I say this with trembling because this is a tough passage to interpret. But I'm, um, sorry, I lost my spot here. I think that going to the extent of saying it's about who is better qualified for the job might actually be adding something to what's there in the text. And we want to be really careful to not do that. We can't afford to leave anything out. We also can't afford to add anything. So, when I read a statement like this, an old Bible commentator from, I don't say old, like he was probably old, but it was from a long time ago. He said, This facility of deception on her part seems to suggest to the apostle her inferiority to man in the strength of intellect, and the consequent wrongness of allowing to woman an intellectual supremacy over man. My response to that is to say, I don't agree. I don't agree that Paul is making the point that women are necessarily less uh, intellectually equipped to teach than men. All of us, I mean, from experience, all of us know lots of smart, even brilliant women. I've been in rooms where the smartest and most capable one there was not a man. I don't believe that Paul is saying women shouldn't teach because men are better teachers. I believe Paul is saying that men should bear the responsibility in teaching because that is what God has said. And there's a big difference there. There's a big difference between being able to prove from our own experiments and thinking to, to prove that, well, it really is the better idea that men lead because we can tell that they're better at leading. Or instead to take God at his word and say, well, we're going to have the men lead in the church not because it seems best to us, but because it's what God has said. And it's good enough for us that God has said it. It comes down to our our reaction and the way we interact with God's word by faith. To take him at his word in faith, that's what he requires of us. I'm not going way back in the opposite direction and saying that women are actually better suited to lead and God wants the weak men to lead and he gets more glory that way. Uh, I'm, I'm not going that far, but what I'm saying is that sometimes in our churches there will be cases Where the best available leaders will be women. And when that happens, we have to make our decision based on faith, not on fact, just like we have to do in every other area of our faith. Remember, God didn't choose the nation of Israel because they were the best nation around and they were going to do the best job of obeying him. And God didn't call believers in the church to him because they were the most righteous people on the block and they deserved to be redeemed. He did it solely out of grace. And I think it takes us down the whole wrong set of tracks to start arguing that men ought to lead in the church because they're more suited to leading. That might often be the case, but it's far from the point. The point is this. Men are to take the lead not because it's what we like or because it's what makes sense to us, but because it's what God has said in his word. And when we obey God and take him at his word, he's glorified as a result. He will not leave us hanging when we take him at his word by faith and his people are to live by his word. It all comes down to your relationship with God's word, particularly in areas that it might be hard for you to understand. And this might be something you can apply to another area in God's word where you are chafing under it. If there is another area that comes to mind for you this morning where you're not quite sure you like to agree with what's in God's word, this might be a good point to revisit that for yourself and ask yourself, what is my relationship with God's word here? Do I decide what what it says, or do I... Learn what it says, and then take it as truth in faith. And I think that's really the point of mentioning the fall here in verse 14. God has created things with this beautiful order. The man would lovingly lead his wife, she would beautifully submit, and together they would accomplish the awesome task of exercising authority over all creation, subduing everything. But in the fall, we do not just see a woman get deceived we see a lot more. We see an entire created order thrown into upheaval because God's word was rejected. Because God's word was twisted by the serpent and Eve and Adam decided that they knew do better. We see God's entire order turned upside down. When the serpent came for Eve, the result was that Eve would end up choosing with what she could see and test with her eyes. Remember, she, she looked at the tree and she saw that the fruit was good rather than remembering what God had said in his word. There was nothing bad-looking about that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is really important to remember. It looked good. There was nothing about it. You couldn't cut open the fruit and smell it and think, oh, that, doesn't, that won't be good for me. The only thing warning against that, against that tree was God's advice. It was God's word. It was to be obedience by faith that they didn't decide what was best for them and go ahead and take and eat. And when the tempter convinced her to rely on her own judgment rather than God's word, her whole relationship with God changed. Now she saw God as just this mean lawgiver and judge. The rule God had given stopped being something good from God, and it turned into just a rule to hold her down, instead of a loving command that was for her good. And when the creature, a snake, approached the woman and deceived her, and then the woman took the lead and ate and brought to the man... And then the man who was supposed to be in charge acted last and just went along with the whole thing, and he ate too. The entire good order in creation was turned upside down. And that's the warning in verse 14. That's why the story of the fall matters to us now, because now we face a similar choice in our churches. Are we going to move forward on the basis of what God has said, or do we choose based on what's right in our own eyes? Everyone knows that Adam was not innocent in the fall. In fact, when Paul talks about Adam over in the book of Romans, he pins it all on him. He says it was Adam's responsibility. The human race fell into sin when Adam ate that fruit, not at the moment when Eve ate it. But he took the back seat in the garden in Genesis. He, he abdicated the responsibility that should have been his. And here in 1 Timothy, Paul is concerned more about the role of women because he's saying something to women all the way through this passage. And so he focuses and emphasizes emphasizes Eve's position in that story. We read in verse 14 that she became a transgressor. Those are serious words. Because of the way she had set aside God's word, she had found herself outside of the blessing that God had created her for. And so we get to verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. We don't have time to take a scenic route with some of the interpretive possibilities in that phrase, she will be saved through childbearing. I'll just have to skip to the end and point out that we know on the authority of God's word all through that there is only one way anyone can be saved from their sins and it's not by giving birth. It is by putting their faith and trust in the cross of Christ and the work, the atoning work that Jesus did when he gave his life to pay the penalty for our sins and when he rose from the dead three days later. So we know, even though it seems a little strange on the surface, we can know with confidence that this does, this does not mean that salvation for a woman requires childbirth. Probably what Paul's thinking about here is, uh, is the idea that here's an opportunity for a woman to do the opposite of what Eve had done, which is to embrace their God-given role. If being church fathers is that one job that's denied to women, then bearing children is the one job that belongs exclusively to women. And he's trying to balance things out a little bit. But there could be something else to that reference about being saved through childbearing. It could be that Paul is still thinking about Eve's situation back in the garden. Her predicament of becoming a transgressor. And he could be thinking about her when he says, but she will be saved through childbearing. Do you remember what Adam and Eve's first jobs were? When God created everything, the heavens and the earth, and then he created, he he made man in his image, male male and female, he made them. And he put them in the garden. They were supposed to be fruitful and multiply, fill the whole earth, have children. And they were also supposed to subdue the whole earth and exercise authority over it. We've talked about how in the fall, that picture of authority was thoroughly broken and turned upside down. Adam and Eve had both together disqualified themselves from the job that God had given them. And one of the consequences in the curse that God pronounced on Eve had to do with the other job that God gave to man and woman with bearing children. God, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Here's what's really interesting. God didn't take the job away. He didn't take that important job away. It was going to be harder. It was going to be scarier. There was going to be pain involved in it, just like the rest of our sinful, broken world right now. But that job of bearing children didn't go away. They still got to do something that they were made for, even though they had rightly disqualified themselves from that job. And there's that promise right there in Genesis 3, when God is pronouncing the curse, there's that promise when he's pronouncing the curse on the serpent, that one day from the children that this woman has, your head will be crushed, that one day sin will be defeated and death will be undone because of the fact that these, this man and woman are still going to go on doing that first job they were given. They're still going to have children. And you read all the genealogies in Genesis, and they all just echo of this. So and so live so many years. They had these children. They had children all the way through, all those genealogies. Every one is a miracle. They still get to do that job, even though it should be lost. And then they died. So you see the effects of the curse? They're all dying. Death has come, and yet they still get to have children. There's this little glimmer of hope because they get to keep doing something that God had told them to do. And finally, Jesus, the Savior, came from that. God kept his promise. Jesus came, and he defeated the curse. So salvation did come through childbearing. And it's really important that it came through a matter of obedience, that Adam and Eve had, through disobedience, disqualified themselves from everything, but in that little matter of obedience, that they kept doing that job, that somehow that is how God brought Christ to the world and saved everything. And so we have to remember that we're, we've got a few things to keep in our mind at the same time. There's the picture of creation. Before the fall, before anything got twisted, it was already in God's design that man and woman would have different roles. That that would be part of his picture here on earth of the man leading and the woman submitting, and that as a result, before the fall, before it was all twisted into competition and and anger and every other kind of sin, originally it was a beautiful picture. And then we have the fall, and we realize that everything was twisted. The woman, as part of her curse, is told that her desire will be to rule over the man, and the man will rule over her. That that whole picture of beautiful submission and interlocking... uh, that shared authority, that the headship of the man, all, all of that has been turned upside down and there's going to be pain and, and suffering and we, we know it. We have 6,000 years full of human history, give or take, that has been broken by that sin. And then we have Jesus, the one who came and crushed the head of the serpent, the one who died to remove the effects of the curse. Right? He came to abolish the effects of the curse as far as they're found. He has conquered death He has won redemption back for those who put their faith in him. And what happens as God's people, when we start to live in a way slowly, piece by piece, because we're still overcoming sin all the time, but when we start to live in a way where that curse has been taken away, we don't just throw off everything and then go off and do our own thing. Because that was the problem in the garden when we did our own thing. What Jesus has redeemed us for is to, to move back a little bit into what we were created for. We get to reflect now what God made us for. And that is a gift that's been given to us by our Savior. We have an opportunity now, as God's people, to do the opposite of what Adam and Eve did in the garden. To not eyeball things up ourselves and say, I think it's best to do it this way. We have an opportunity now to through Christ, through Christ's obedience on our behalf to listen to God's word and take it to heart and say, I will respond in faith. I will believe that what God has said is right. And this is one area, the area of gender in our church, where we can model that to the world and we can show and glorify God by doing things the way God has said to do them. Not because it adds up for us, but because God has said it. So men, don't abdicate your responsibility. We started this morning by saying the men take the lead in worship and in prayer. And we live in an era today where it's just too easy for us to slip into the background sometimes, in our homes and in our churches. We need men who are going to take the lead and not in a domineering, sin-reflecting, masochistic kind of way, but in the kind of way that Jesus took the lead, that gentle servant leadership which was willing to die for the sake of his church. Jesus saves us more ways than we think. The obedience, the perfect obedience that Jesus came and lived out in this life and the redemption that he has brought offers us a chance to step into that role and be the men that God created us to be. It's the same thing with the woman. We have a picture of submission, and obedience, willing submission in Jesus Christ that is absolutely unparalleled. Submission in this world is a dirty word. If you read that phrase, the women are to be submissive, man, the world outside that doors, and maybe even some of us in here, because we're drinking, we're taking, we're breathing the air, and we're drinking the water out there, it just, it sounds like a dirty word right away. But that's the way Jesus is described relating to the Father. That's part of the triune God. That's part of the God who has existed in perfect, loving community all the way since before creation and he will exist all that way forever. The Alpha and the Omega. That's part of God's character that we get to show. And ladies, you are called to that. And as a church, we are called to reflect that pattern in the way that we operate as our church and that God will get glory from that. It's an opportunity. Jesus saves us in more ways than we think he saves us. His perfect obedience erases our, our disobedience. He, he is not just our savior, but he's also our example in how we ought to live in the household of God. So that lie of Satan in the garden is still the same lie. It still hangs there. It still says that God doesn't want the best for you. That God has created some set of arbitrary rules that are going to hurt you and that are going to hold you down. And that is still a lie. And the gospel frees us from that lie. Because the gospel shows us that once and for all, God does not hold his best back from us. God is a gracious and loving God who wants us to experience every good thing with him. And that's why he sent Jesus into the world to redeem us. We can take him at his word. We can trust him at his word. And trusting him in salvation does never leads to anything less than those closing words in that verse, to continuing in faith and love and holiness with self control. As a result of becoming God's people, we need to let the church conduct itself the way the Word of God would have it conduct itself. As ones who were created and saved and made to be his children. I'm going to ask the, the worship team to come up and they're as I pray and they're going to close us off in a song today. I'm a little bit under the weather, so I'll be out by the lampstand after in that, that usual kind of pastoral spot where we always stand after the message. Uh, I'm a little bit under the weather, so I'll try not to shake your hand. I've, I've dodged shaking many of your hands already today, but I would be happy to, to carry on talking about this passage and, and this topic because I feel like there's lots, that, lots that's still been left unsaid this morning. But let's close off in a word of prayer right now. Heavenly Father we thank you that you are so full of grace and we need your grace when we deal with with hard issues that have the potential to divide the church we need your grace in the way we respond to your word when we hear it on this particular topic and we need your grace when we interact with others who have different convictions in this particular topic Lord we pray that you will help us always to be obedient to your word, to live in a way that reflects your word to us. We thank you that you've you've sent your word in the flesh, Jesus Christ, to redeem us from all of our sin, to redeem us from all of our brokenness, and to restore us to that image of, of humanity the way you meant it to be, the way we really get to see it lived out in the person of Jesus. We pray that you help us be be gracious to others, And most of all, that you help us to be a good witness to the world. Because we, based on our faith in you, in who you are and what you've said, we believe that as we honor you by walking according to your word, that you will receive glory in this world, that you will bless us, and Lord, that that you will ultimately vindicate your word and your people. To remind us that our identity is based on what you have said and on what you have done. In Jesus' name we pray.